Welcome back to What's Up With Your Down There. I'm your host, Miriam Rosenberg, Certified Nurse Midwife at Legacy Emanuel Midwifery in Portland, Oregon. On today's episode, we're talking about how to talk to your kids about their genitals. What's up with your down there? 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 Down there. So since my expertise extends mostly to adults, and many of you had questions about children and sexuality and how to talk to your kids about their genitals and their reproductive health, I invited a guest who is an expert in this area, Dr. Carrie Schaefer, who is a family practice physician at Healthy Living Family Medicine here in Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Dr. Schaefer. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? I decided I wanted to be a doctor in middle school. And when I went to med school, I tried all the rotations. The one that felt most at home was family medicine. I love connecting with people over time. The wonderful thing is getting to watch kids grow up. I was running Healthy Living Family Medicine and then recently changed models. So now I'm employed by Healthy Living Community, which is a nonprofit. We have started a Healthy Living Community as an effort to make healthcare that's holistic, more accessible to more people. So we are doing this in a membership form, but the membership to the community is a sliding scale based on what you can afford of $5 per month up to whatever feels right to contribute to the community and this model. And then appointments are pay what you can. The goal is both to provide holistic medical care that's accessible, but also to help grow a community of people who are interested in being healthy because being healthy in our world is not easy. How do you feel like your practice has changed over time as you've had more experience taking care of people of all ages, but specifically kids? Are there ways in which you feel like the advice you've given or the counseling that you give to parents has changed? For sure. I think becoming a mom made a huge difference for that. As much as we like to say there's science to medicine, and there is, there's also a lot of art to the medicine, right? And that, I think, plays a big role in my own experience and my own ability to connect with parents around the experiences of being a parent. Granted, my kid's experience is not the same as their kid's experience, but it is, I think, really helpful to be able to connect on that level. Um, so I do, I really feel that being a parent has played a huge role in just helping me be better able to understand and connect with parents. Can you tell us how old your kids are now? Yeah, I have a three-year-old and a seven-year-old who just started second grade. And for those listeners that don't know, I also have two kids, one that's a year and a half and a five-year-old. So today's topic is one that is of personal as well as professional interest to me and clearly was of interest to many of you. We're sort of in a brave new world right now that I think parents for many generations have struggled with how to talk to their kids about sexuality, about reproductive health. Because frankly, people find the idea of putting the words kids and sex in the same sentence to be a bit fraught. Mm -hmm. And I think right now, culturally, we're confronting issues around gender identity, sexual orientation with children in a way that I think just never happened in previous generations. And I think that some of the language is confusing for people. Mm -hmm. They are worried about saying the wrong thing and of not doing the best by their child. When I look at the questions that were submitted, I hear a lot of anxiety about I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to hurt my kid and set them up to have baggage around their sexuality or their gender identity for years to come. So 
I think that some of this is also about needing new words, new ways of talking about things. Are there personal experiences that have shaped your ways of talking to parents about gender identity for children, sexuality in children? Yes. My elder child is is transgender. She is an amazing human, has taught me so much. So it's in part because I, already, I had some patients who were transgender and I wanted to better understand how to support them. But also then this new experience that I was not expecting to happen in my life and I'm very thankful for has, she, she has taught me so much and it has led me to want to learn more. And it has also made me start thinking about what are risks to our kids, especially around gender identity. When you stop and say, there's a 40% suicide rate in transgender teens. One of my thoughts as a primary care physician who sees kids is how can we best reduce that risk? Is it possible to help more kids understand their true gender identity earlier? So that during puberty, when things are so emotionally fraught, regardless of gender identity, if you if you are a cis human, right? If you're a transgender human, you're going to still have emotional chaos because that's what puberty does. And to compound that with going through the wrong puberty explains some of the challenges and why there is an increased suicide rate. So the doctor in me is like, okay, well, is it possible for us to start doing a better job of having that language out there to just help know that it's possible? As doctors, especially pediatricians and family docs, I think it's really important for us to start having that conversation about just what your assigned gender at birth is, is not necessarily what your gender identity is. And just to clarify, speaking of language, yes. so yeah. for those of you who aren't familiar with the term cisgendered or a cishuman, that's basically referring to a person whose gender identity aligns with the sex that they were assigned at birth. So when you were born, the provider took a look at your genitals and based on that said, okay, you're a boy or you're a girl. And then for people who are cisgendered, they identify as a boy or a girl growing up or as a man or a woman in adulthood. And that's in contrast to someone who identifies as either transgender or gender non-binary for whom their genitals at birth did not reflect necessarily the gender that they experienced or that they live as a child or as an adult. I'm curious, what was your own experience as a child of being educated or spoken to about gender, about sex, about your genitals? Honestly, the, the conversation I remember having about sex was I remember my mom taking me with my little teeny, like one and a half year old sister out to the hammock in our backyard and telling me what sex was. My response was, well, that's gross. Looking back, it's great that she could tell me and that it was important to tell me, even at such a young age, like this is important and this is what it is. The other thing I remember not talking about from my parents, but I remember in elementary school that we were divided into two groups and had to go and watch the video for the people with vaginas. And the other half went to watch the video in the other room for the people with penises. And when we came back, we were not allowed to talk about it. It was like, no, you can't talk about that. And I definitely think that there's restrictions in public education mm -hmm. about what can and cannot be taught and the division of kids into two groups to give them different education about their bodies, depending on what their gender is, I think is something that I remember as well. We were separated into two groups, fifth grade, and that was the puberty talk, yeah. right? And then there's the sex education that we all got in high school. I went to uh, public high school and 
I remember with the sex education component, they weren't allowed to actually tell us how penis and vagina sex happened. They could show us diagrams of penises and diagrams of vaginas. They could talk about sexually transmitted infections, birth control, um, all that good stuff. But we never talked about consent. Mm -hmm. We never went through the mechanics of how sex worked, whether it was penis and vagina sex or any other type of sex. There was no conversation about sexual orientation or gender identity, for sure. Mm -hmm. And we were left to muddle it all out. And I grew up in a pretty progressive family. I learned about all different kinds of sex growing up. But even so, we never talked about masturbation. We never talked about gender identity. Um, we didn't talk a lot about just anatomy and, and the parts that my mm -hmm. sibling and I had. Um, and that's from a pretty progressive household mm -hmm. where we did talk about those things. And I think that's not the norm. I mm -hmm. think there's a lot of silence on these issues. I think there's a lot of discomfort and mm -hmm. lack of information that happens. So even in best case scenarios, I think we're all operating at a bit of a deficit as we enter adulthood and as we try to sort these things out. So there's a lot of internet searches these days, I think, talking amongst friends. I'm sure a lot of misinformation that's getting passed back and forth and harmful ideas. It's something that I'm hopeful that our conversation today is maybe going to shed some light on in new and awesome ways. <laughs> I think we should launch into some of the questions sure. that got submitted. Great. This question was submitted by someone who is expecting a baby boy based on the genitals identified on the ultrasound. And she was curious, how do you counsel your patients about newborn circumcision? When I, when I talk to people about it, I like to talk about the data that is some data. There is some data that there is reduced risk of sexually transmitted infections. But your child is not consenting to have a part of their body removed. And it is uncomfortable. And especially when it's done right in the first few days. Um, and otherwise, if you're gonna do it not under anesthesia, you have to do it in the first two weeks, right? That's the time where the baby is trying to connect with their mom and learn how to nurse and learn how to feel comfortable in this new chaotic world of light and sound and all of the stuff, right? It's hard for me to feel like that is the best choice for the kid. I don't have a religious background that would encourage me to do a circumcision, but I really think it's important for people to know that we try to focus so much on that initial time of connection that, you know, if a kid's in pain, that's going to detract from that and it may make it harder to develop a good nursing relationship and it may make those first nights harder. So uh, I clearly have a bias that is not pro-circumcision, I support my patients regardless. If you don't do it during the first couple of weeks, you'd end up seeing a urologist and they will do it, but they usually wait till about six months and do it under anesthesia has been my experience when I do referrals. So the next question is from a person who has two young twins. And she says, how can I teach my kids about consent? If my twins are not sniffing each other's buttholes, they're poking each other in the vulva with their toenails. We talk about consent and they have a good concept of it, but they are consenting to each other for things that are inappropriate. I don't really like the concept of private parts are only for you because that's not totally true. I want to just talk about vulvas, buttholes, and crotch stuff like any other part of the body, but clearly they hold a huge amount of hilarity. With not twins, there would be a limited amount of time when they were alone and naked, but with twins, they are together all of the time and quite a lot of that time is in their room where they are having their own private time. 
How do I address this without using language that makes me the boss of their genitals? At this time, my best try is genitals are delicate. Don't poke other people's. That is a great question. I really appreciate how thoughtful that parent really is about this. They're clearly trying to figure out a way that's really respectful to do that, which is I appreciate. I think it's important to talk about genitals are sensitive, right? And that that is probably the one of the best ways to focus that and say different parts of the body, eyeballs, for example, right? It's best not to poke someone's eyeballs. You're going to say that all the time. And I think in doing that as a comparison, like, hey, you know, another part of your body that's really sensitive is your eyeballs. Don't poke your eyeballs. We all know that, but we have to teach our kids that, especially if you make that comparison, then you're pulling away some of that kind of stigma of our genitals are something to not touch. But yeah, it's great to touch your genitals. And it's really important that be consensual around it. It's again, emphasizing that that's an area that could be hurt if we're not careful. And I do think that there's the genital aspect of this and how mm -hmm. to talk about genitals in a body positive way that's still sex positive. Mm -hmm. And then there's the consent piece of things, right. which I think there's a lot of ways to talk to young children about learning consent that don't necessarily have to do with sexuality. Even. Right. So are there ways that you encourage parents to teach their young children about consent in a general way in their lives? I mean, one of the ways that I try to model that is that when we're in the, in the office, I make sure that we talk about consent. I think it's really important to say, like, you do get to decide who touches you and where. One of the books that I brought today talks a little bit about consent, and it's called Sex is a Funny Word. It's an awesome book. It's fun. One of the things they do in that book, which I appreciate and have adopted, is talking about consent in general, right? All body parts. Like if you're someone who doesn't like having your feet touched, you can, it's totally okay to say, don't touch my foot. Now that's not a private part, but maybe we just don't use the word private parts because really everything could be a private part. If someone really never wants anyone to see their foot, that can be a private part, right? And so it's up to a person to determine what's a private part. In that book, they use the term middle parts for genital related things, breasts and genitals. I really like that because I middle think parts. middle parts, because I think it gives that consent permission, right? To say, yeah, my pinky could be a private part. There are plenty of body parts that could be a private part for you. We want to give you the permission to choose that private part for you. In the book, like it has some questions to have that conversation with your kid. So it gives you guide for conversation mm -hmm. that helps spark some of these talks with your kids. Exactly. And I think the more we get into the conversations with our kids, the more it just is easier. I'm realizing part of the mantra of my podcast is the Mr. Rogers quote about like what is mentionable is manageable. Mm -hmm. And that there are so many things we feel like we can't mention and they become scary things yeah. that we feel like are shameful or that we feel like we are alone in, in working on. And so I think a lot of this is about being able to just name things yeah. and having the words to name things. And yet I also know that we're working in within, you know, I can create a shame-free inclusive space in my exam room and I work in the context of our larger society. Right. I had a teenage patient who at some point started to look a little uncomfortable in the room. And I said, like, are you okay? Is there anything I can do to make you feel more comfortable? And she said, can you please stop saying the word vagina? It makes me so uncomfortable. And I was like, okay, 
what shall we use to talk about that part of your body? Because I also realized that she's growing up steeped in the tea of a society that doesn't like to call genitalia by their names. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to make her feel uncomfortable. And yet I do feel as a medical provider, this onus to use the sort of proper clinical terminology to refer to people's body parts. And yet I have to let go of that too. Mm -hmm. I have to call people's body parts by what they want to call them. I do use clinical terminology to talk to my kids about their genitals. That's what I tend to do. And that comes from a place for me of uh, child abuse prevention, right? Mm -hmm. That I want my kids to know the names for their body parts and to know what parts are very important that they know they have the ability to say no to touch from anyone Mm -hmm. from... I think it's interesting your point about any part of your body could be one of those parts, not just your middle parts, as the the book calls them, which mm-hmm. I do like. And yet, our kids are going to use lots of words to oh, talk yeah. about their genitals. So I try to just also follow my kids' lead. What do you counsel patients about when you when they want to give the talk to their young kid? The biggest thing I think is important is just honesty and being open. I'm a mm-hmm. I am a huge fan of using the anatomical terms. And I really like your point around, you know, some people that doesn't work for them. But yeah, to me, the most important thing is honesty and clarity. If things are only talked about in this, this is a big conversation manner, then it's going to be taken even more intensely. If we can come at it from a, this is what happens, as well as maybe sharing, this is my experience with puberty. I think it's really important for kids to know, hey, my parents gone through this and hey, it can be hard. I feel like that connection can be really helpful to normalize it, right? And I think the other part is really focusing on that we all go through a puberty at some point. What it looks like is different and it's truly a spectrum, right? We, the more we can normalize and say, everyone goes through it at a different time. To me, it's the honesty and the normalizing the variety. And this is something that I think can be tricky. And it's something that I think I struggle with on this podcast is how do we allow for nuance and a spectrum of identity, a spectrum of bodies, differences between human beings? And how do we give clarity, right? Mm -hmm. Because binaries are really clear. You're either this or you're that. If you're born with these parts, then this is your gender. If you are straight, then this is who you're attracted to. And if you're gay, this is who you're attracted to, right? These are labels that we can use to try to categorize our existence, Mm -hmm. make things really clear. And especially with small children, I think we're often struggling to just provide clarity because they ask questions. So I do think it's interesting when we talk about, quote unquote, the talk, it's usually not just one talk, right? These are conversations that happen at the grocery store, but also quietly at night. Mm -hmm. And also when you set up the talk versus when your kid just asks a question, I think that some of the terms I hear you use, I think are really helpful and are things that I have found useful, such as saying most people Mm -hmm. this, some people this. I know when my kids started talking to me about genitals and about sort of implicitly about gender, I'll use phrases like most little boys have penises. Some little boys have vulvas. Mm -hmm. Most little girls have vaginas. Some little girls have penises. To answer his question about why do some people have penises and some people have vaginas and his insistence on gendering people in a very particular way because he lives in the world and gets that message from many different directions. 
and yet also creating space in which he understands that this isn't a binary and that mm -hmm. there is room for variety within these things we're talking about. And so I think the conversation does have to differ if your child is about to go through puberty or if your child is three and asking questions about their penis or their vulva mm -hmm. or somebody else's penis or vulva. And that can be a, a delicate art, as you put it. It really, yeah, I mean, it really is. And I think the that verbiage of most and some is really important. What is really important to me, especially as the mom of a transgender child, is that we don't just say boys have penises, girls have vaginas, because it's one, not true, and two, it's non-affirming. The more that we can, I think the more we can just open up the possibilities. And I've had moments where I think to myself, gosh, this conversation would be faster and easier if sure. I just went with the old narrative, right? Boys have penises, girls have vaginas, boom, done. Yeah. And yet the reality is that these conversations just take a little longer and, and that's hard. Yeah. It's not it's not always easy to find the words or the time. It, I, I think it is key um, for kids being able to find who they are and feel safe doing it, mm -hmm. right? To just know that there's options. Because if you believe that there's possibilities, then it's safe to have that conversation, right? And mm -hmm. even in households where people are clearly open-minded and understanding and supportive, sometimes doing something that feels against the culture is hard. My daughter didn't ask to put on dresses and skirts. She just really hated pants and shirts and would fight getting them on and tear them off the moment she got home from school. And it took her amazing nanny and me to connect and connect with her and say, hey, it seems like you don't like this. Is that true? Yeah, I don't like pants. And then me actually just asking, would you prefer a skirt or an address? Yes. Should we go shopping? Yes. It can feel hard to step over that or not even know that that's what I want or that that's a possibility because as much as I attempt to be gender neutral in my clothing purchasing for my kid, I didn't go buy dresses. And so how do you address that professionally in your office? So you have a young child that comes in for well child care, just a regular sort of routine checkup. Mm -hmm. What are the ways that you explore some of these topics with a kid? Usually by age four, definitely by age five, it is step one when I talk to the kid, I will step one say, I have used this name for you because this is the name your parent gave me, but I would like to hear if there's another name you would prefer I use. So just starting with name, like I wanna give them the space to say, this is the name I feel would really like. Usually they go with the name that they came in with and then once we've talked about name, then we then I'll ask about pronoun. And I always say, these are my pronouns. I use she and her. And I usually don't say pronoun at that age. So how do you ask that question about pronouns to a young child? So I'll just say, I use she and her when I want people or when people are talking about me. What word would you like me to use when I, I talk about you? Would you like me to use he, she, they, or something completely different? And Part of my reason for this is both wanting to make sure kids know there's possibilities out there, right? And I'm not, like I said, I'm not, there are plenty of kids and usually at four and five, they just kind of look at me like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And that's fine. I just want them to know that there's option, right? Mm -hmm. That I'm not going to make a presumption and that I'm a safe place to talk about, talk to about it. And at this point, like teens, 
almost always know what I'm talking about and will say, oh, clearly it's this. But I feel like just getting that phrase out there and that possibility is what will serve the kids and help them think, oh, I don't have to just presume that I'm doing what everyone thinks I'm doing because of my genitalia, right? Mm -hmm. So we talk about pronouns. And then one of the things that is most important to me is I'll ask kid first what they want to talk about if they have questions. Some do, usually they don't. And then I will say, okay, well, I'm going to ask mom, dad, whomever's there, if they have any questions and if they want to tell me anything. But what I really want you to know is that you know your body better than everybody else. You know your body better than mom. You know about your body than me better than I do as a doctor. And so if something either one of us says doesn't sound right, tell us. That understanding is something that I'm really hoping we can get kids to build with. So there's not that fear. There's not that something's going on with my body. I don't know what it is. You have to fix it for me or it's all falling apart. Or, you know, like there's so much fear about bodies as people get become adults. So my hope is that can we establish this? Bodies are awesome. Bodies are really cool. And no one knows your body as well as you do. Yeah. And this is something that I think all of healthcare needs to learn and parents all need to be on board with. I think there's a lot of hierarchies that we've accepted that doctors know more about your body than you do, that your parent knows more about your body than you do, and that by recentering the child and saying, you are the expert in your body. I need to learn from you to take care of you as your doctor or your midwife can be super empowering and upend some of those dynamics that are really unhealthy and mm-hmm. that lead to harm for, for kids. So that's really beautiful. I love that. Thanks. You mentioned the book, Sex is a Funny Word. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other books that you recommend to parents in terms of talking with their kids about body, sex, gender, etc.? There's several books. I brought them so I don't have to remember names. Um, so Sex is a Funny Word, which is great. It's by Corey Silverberg and Fiona Smith. Sex is a Funny Word. They also wrote What Makes a Baby, which is an awesome, very open book about that to make a baby, you need a sperm and an egg, but who that comes from is really open. So it's, I think, a really good thing for explaining to kids about who've been adopted, who kids who have two moms, two dads, two, you know, or a surrogate, or, you know, there's so many possibilities these days, which is wonderful. And having an inclusive book for that is great. And it's bright and colorful and fun for kids. Uh, and then sex is a funny word, I think, does a great job of talking about sex, um, talking about bodies. The book that I recently found that I like a lot is Noni Talks About Puberty by Dr. Mary Jo Podgorski. I'm probably butchering, butchering her, her last name. Dr. I apologize. Dr. Podgorski, we apologize for yes, our mispronunciation I of your totally name, but thank do. you for your book, Noni Talks About Puberty. Yeah. My one concern is that it does have the page where it's like, this is a boy body and this is a girl body. But at the bottom of the page, it is really clear to say that body parts are not the same as gender, right? So it's saying that this is for a assigned sex, this is the body parts, but that is not your gender and that is important. And I do wanna be really clear that it's not on a parent to figure out whether their kid is cisgendered, transgendered, or gender non-binary yes. and then buy the right book, no. right? The idea is that if we can give our kids books that allow for the existence of cisgendered people, transgendered people, 
gender non-binary people, it creates space for all kids mm-hmm. to learn about their sexuality, their gender, their bodies. So ideally, these books are just inclusive books. Right. It's not a special book for each kid, depending on what we have determined their identity is, because these things are changeable mm-hmm. and fluid. And as time goes by, your child may discover things about themselves. And by creating space for them to understand, like you were saying, that there is a spectrum, that there are a lot of different ways to be, that's going to help them as they explore their own identity, because we aren't just born knowing who we are based on what our body looks like. So this is going to be something that is evolves over time. Exactly. And that's why I like Noni talks about puberty, because um, while it does have some specific info for transgender, gender fluid, gender questioning, it is very just inclusive in there's many ways to be. Are there other books on your reading list for kids to learn about their bodies and their gender? This book is Your Body is Awesome. Um, and this is by this is Sandrine... I... Daniel's daughter, and it's uh, body respect for children. Yeah, it's and I love it because it's really just talks about how we all have bodies, bodies do amazing things, and that we should learn to listen to our bodies, and our bodies can tell us what they need to know. And it does it has a couple exercises that kids can choose to do or not when you're reading it with them. And so. I do think that books, especially for children, are a format that they're usually it feels comfortable. They don't necessarily have to have a direct like eye to eye conversation about mm-hmm. sensitive subjects with their parent, but it's a way to sort of reorient that you read together. It's kind of fun. And that just brings up a subject. So I know maybe it's because I'm a midwife, but my kids talk about this stuff all the time. But if that's not something that happens in your house, this is a great way to say like, this is a topic we can talk about because mm-hmm. we're going to read this book about it. Those are some great recommendations, including one I'd never heard of. So thank you for yeah. bringing those. Let's jump back into some of these questions because I feel like our conversation has been wide ranging and wonderfully off topic. I love it. (laughs) How do you recommend discussing cleaning and general care of bodies and body parts with small children? I have the the opinion that correct terms should be used, vulva, for example, and my husband is less comfortable with this. Would love to hear your thoughts. For what it's worth, the child in question is a two and a half year old girl. I really do think that using correct body terms or anatomic body terms is important but also right if you're to note that if a person is uncomfortable using that term then the kid's going to feel that kids read body language really well so if it's just no term feels comfortable then we we need to work on that if it's well this word we feel comfortable then use both terms right i mean there are as you already said there are many terms and different people are going to have different comfort levels with different terms my husband uses the term wiener for a penis, and I say penis, and our son, I will say, seems totally comfortable with the fact that we t- use two different words, but I'm going to be honest, the word wiener makes me uncomfortable, so I use penis, and I think that there, it is okay to use different words as long as everyone understands what they're talking about, mm-hmm. and that the adult is not putting any like weird shame or anything on the words that they're using. I mean, I think that's the key is just helping find the words that help you feel more comfortable having that conversation. And ideally saying the anatomic word is this, I use this so that it's clear. And then, yes, maybe you have that moment of saying vagina is really hard, but it's one moment. And then, okay, you use yoni or whatever the word is that one chooses that feels safer to you. But then that's not, you're not getting that feeling of like discomfort. Clearly, my parent is uncomfortable having this conversation. 
And so maybe in this case, in responding to your question, if your husband's less comfortable with using the term vulva, for example, that's a conversation that the two of you have about what word does feel right, more comfortable, exactly. right? And using that so that the important piece being that you can talk about it, that it doesn't just have to be an area of silence. And if vulva really isn't working for him, either you guys can use two different words or you can find a word that feels comfortable for yeah. both of you to use. So then returning to sort of the first part of the question, how do you talk with kids about cleaning their bodies? I think it returns to our, you know, our conversation earlier about with the consent with the twins, right? Is that we want to be gentle with our genitals because they are sensitive parts of our body. But at the same time, they don't need a lot of extra other than we want to just clean off the stuff on the outside, right? Like, yes, your anus, we should wipe, clean, make sure the poop's clean off. That is important. And I do, I'm definitely ascribed to the try to teach children with vulvas and vaginas that wipe from front to back so you're not wiping poop into your vagina. Yes. And I have talked about this on an earlier episode aimed at adults, not children. Mm -hmm. I, I was trying to remember how did I teach my kid about like wiping their butt, right? How did I learn how to wipe my own butt? Mm -hmm. And I was always taught, I don't remember by whom, to wipe from front to back. But I have adult friends with an interest in health who were like, you do what? I've never heard of this before. So this is something that I do think it is reasonable to teach children mm -hmm. who have vulvas and vaginas to wipe from front to back to avoid taking the poop from the back to the front. Vulvas and vaginas mm -hmm. can be sensitive and if they get poop inside of them, it can cause infections and irritations. But I think what I hear you saying is also, while these are delicate parts of our bodies, we just clean them in the ways that we might clean the rest of our bodies. They don't require like a, a special kit. <laughs> right. Exactly. There is not, it's just use water, soap for outside stuff. I do get questions about cleaning penises, especially uncircumcised penises, right? And the key to that is one, it is never someone else's job to retract a foreskin, right? It is only the kid's job when they're touching their penis. Eventually, it will retract over time because that's what the, it will do is that the kind of connections, there's some kind of subtle connective tissue between the foreskin and the head, the glands of the penis. And those break down over time with movement as kids play with their penises because anyone who has a kid with a penis will know that their kid will play with the penis. So never retract some kid's foreskin for them. And in terms of cleaning, clean it with water and it will be fine. The next question says, how can I talk to my little ones about masturbation? I want to be sex positive, but I also don't want them touching themselves in the grocery store. So how do you frame that conversation? To me, it's really important that we emphasize that bodies are beautiful and amazing and it can feel fun to touch them and that's okay and good. And there are places that it's great to do that, like your room when you're alone. And there are places that culturally it is not appropriate to do that. My emphasis is usually like, let's focus on that. It's a good thing, right? So there's not that shame, like don't do that, mm -hmm. right? Because if, if we only focus on the don't do that, it f is harder for kids to connect on that and to feel like, well, maybe I just can't do that at all, right? So really the more we can start with, it's a cool, great thing to enjoy our bodies. And there are specific places that that is considered acceptable. And at home, having that conversation like, we as a family feel like our rooms are their spaces for that, right? Using the imperial we a lot. Like in our home, we wash our hands after we go to the bathroom. We eat with a fork. We touch ourselves in the privacy of our own bedrooms. <laughs> and 
we when we go to other people's houses, we talk a little bit about like this is what they do here. And so that's what we're gonna respect because mm-hmm. we're guests in someone's yeah. home. So that has included things like we don't go without underwear on other people's couches, right? And we just keep it fun. And yeah. like, it's it's not something that's like a big deal or like come down like a ton of bricks on my kids. Right. But at the same time, just understanding that like in certain settings, there are certain rules and in other settings, there are other rules. And we do our best to follow those rules, yeah. especially for like children at certain ages, they are rule followers. They mm-hmm. want to follow the rules. And so creating some norms that help them to understand when it is and is not appropriate to do these things isn't being sex negative, isn't being is not shaming them about mm-hmm. the enjoyment of touching their own bodies, but just helping them understand context in which it's going to be more or less appropriate. So I think it's very doable. I like your, I like your suggestions. In terms of other ways that we can be positive, here's another question. How can I teach my daughter body positivity? She's only nine and I've already heard her talk about dieting, being fat, etc. We don't talk like that at home, but clearly she's picking up these messages out in the world. Yeah, I mean, that's a hard one because we, you can't change what's happening out in the world. But really, yeah, just focusing on what's a healthy body, right? And a healthy body is a body that can do the things you want it to do. All bodies are beautiful. And like I said, I really love going back to what do you want to do with your body? Our bodies are to help us be active. Our bodies are to help us to enjoy things. That's verbiage I try to use with my patients too, just around like, no, I'm not going to say to someone, you need to lose weight to be healthy, right? I'm going to say, let's talk about how you be healthy because everyone can probably do things that are healthier for their bodies. And one's healthiness is not equate to one's body shape or size. Mm -hmm. So the more we can really focus on the word healthy and what we do with our bodies and that our bodies are useful, awesome tools. I think the easier it is to feel good in our bodies. So putting the focus on function over form, right? That it is important what our bodies can do and how we feel in our bodies, but not as important what shape those bodies take. Right. I also want to say that I think some of these books you brought in do a really nice job of having illustrations that show bodies of lots of different shapes. Because I think sometimes we are taught that thin bodies are good bodies and big bodies are bad bodies. But sometimes we just catch it, right? That every magazine you look at, every book you look at, shows a lot of people who have smaller bodies. Mm -hmm. And so I also think exposing your kids to images of people of all shapes and sizes is a way to normalize the Mm -hmm. fact that people can have lots of different types of bodies, none of which are sort of better bodies or worse bodies, but just lots of different bodies. One way that I try to model that for my kids is that I just try to not compliment people's appearance mm-hmm. in general. If I'm going to compliment someone, I would like to compliment them on other things. Mm-hmm. Because the more we can focus on really trying to emphasize, like, look at all these things that are awesome about people, that doesn't have to include what they look like. Mm-hmm. Because some of this is the explicit conversation about how important it is that we nourish our bodies with food that makes us feel good and makes our body strong. And some of this is the indirect, right? So I always encourage people to think about how it is they talk about their own bodies because their kids are watching and listening. So not making comments about your own body, like, oh, my body's so fat, or, oh, I've just been eating way too, like, you know, it's the holiday season, I've been really picking out on food. And just to be really mindful that your kids are going to absorb messages from that. And what messages do you want them to absorb? And so modeling that behavior 
taking care and how you talk. And if you're struggling with your own issues around body image or about weight or things like that, to work on those issues in ways that don't transmit some harmful messages to your kids as mm -hmm. they're starting to learn about what makes their body a good body. Um, it sounds like in your household, you're not talking about dieting, you're not talking about being fat, etc. But modeling other ways of talking about bodies is going to help to counteract some of those really powerful cultural messages. Keeping literature at home that reflects the variety of body types is going to be helpful. Having conversations about like what feels good in your body, what makes you feel strong, what can your body do, um, and emphasizing that over saying like, oh, look, you've lost weight, or compliments that emphasize body size as being good or bad, I think are all helpful ways of talking about this stuff. The next question, she starts, vulvovaginitis and four-year-old vulva havers, apparently super common. My daughter's been having off and on vulva pain for the last couple months. My pediatrician says it's the most common complaint he has from this age group. Why? And what can we do other than improving hygiene? FYI, the pain is not extreme, but my daughter will mention it maybe once or twice a week when it's bothering her and sometimes seems uncomfortable pulling at her underwear, etc. So is this a common issue that comes up among the four-year-old vulva havers? It is. There's a variety of contributing factors. Some of it is potty learning, right? And learning how to wipe. And at that age, there's definitely some increasing independence and maybe not wiping or inadequate wiping. You know, we talk a lot about you need to wipe for poop, but sometimes like, yeah, you should wipe for pee too. And I don't think it always happens. So I think that's often part of it. Bathing more frequently can help with that. There's also the challenge that things like soap and bubble bath and things like that can be irritants as well. So I generally encourage kids in general, but definitely vulva havers to not do bubble baths when they're young, even though it's lots of fun. It is not great for their vulvas. Mm -hmm. What I found really helpful is just applying a little coconut oil on the outside of the vagina. Like for babies who are having yeast diaper rash, mm -hmm. Coconut oil is great. Mm -hmm. And so, just externally. Just externally. Vulva. Yeah. Uh -huh. Clearly, you know, definitely not internally mm -hmm. at this age. You know, there is there are some antifungal properties to coconut oil, mm -hmm. and it tends to be a nice option. Thank you for answering so many of our questions today. Again, I've been talking with Dr. Carrie Schaefer from Healthy Living Community. Her website is healthylivingfamilymedicine.com. Thank you again, Dr. Carrie. Thanks for tuning in. You can submit your questions by emailing what's up with your down there at gmail.com, by calling 503 660 8689 and leaving a voicemail, or on the website at www.whatsupwithyourdownthere.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter at your down there, and you can subscribe on kboo.fm, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. To be clear, the views expressed in this podcast do not represent the views of my wonderful employer, Legacy Health System. Furthermore, this podcast is for your amusement and education only. It is not a substitute for medical advice from your healthcare provider. Thanks so much for tuning in. I look forward to answering your questions on the next episode. This podcast was made possible by a generous community grant from the American College of Nurse Midwives and the Francis T. Thatcher Foundation. Original music by Joe McKenzie, with vocals by Christina Cano. Artwork by Sarah J. Elliott. This podcast was produced at KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. 
kboo.fm. Thanks for listening. Kboo.